in service of Stefan Ozic. Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Wow, what a conversation this was. This one moved me, this one brought a lot up for me, and this one was deeply, deeply insightful, and both literally deep as this man who I spoke to is none other than William Truebridge. He has gone to, literally, the deepest depths than any other human being in the world, specifically in the discipline, constant no fins, where once goes into, submerges themselves into the ocean or into any body of water and dives down with no support, no aid, no fins, with themselves in a wetsuit and brings themselves back up all in one breath hold. So this leads me to ask the question as to what sort of mind, what sort of person, what sort of direction would one have to take in order to achieve such tasks for the body to have the ability to go to such places. This conversation explores the techniques involved and what is involved in free diving. We talk about his not so graceful rise. We talk about training for such efforts and the proficiencies needed to be a free diver. We talk about his previous record attempts and he goes down some quite beautiful what would you call it, soliloquies, where he speaks to the idea of freediving and that it's this embrace of little things and what it, what it means to be a part and be becoming a part of the ecosystem and that mental escape from your head. We talk about physical uh, and the distresses and dealing with such distresses and how he encounters and overcomes these obstacles and there's much much more I don't want to give away too much because the conversation gives so much as I said I was so happy with this conversation and I think you will take a lot away from this one uh, because there's a lot to take away from it William is a very deeply well uh, patient and very articulate man where he's very considered that emanates the type of mind he has and the type of person he has to be to be doing such feats to be on such an athletic pathway I won't ramble on anymore I'll let the conversation do most of the speaking once again thank you for tuning in and I hope you enjoy speak soon Hello, William. How are you? Good, how are you? Yeah, doing well. well. It's been a pretty immense few weeks, but yeah, it's been well. The weather's really um, blaring down today, so I'm trying to get some yeah. nice lighting ambience. Right. And situ. Where are you? Pardon me? Whereabouts are you? I'm in Auckland, New Zealand. Oh, in Auckland. Yeah. Has it been has it been raining a lot there again? Yeah. 
it's kind of off and on, off and on, quite constant. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, my, my parents are, uh, I'm from Hawke's Bay, down on Hawke's Bay. Um, they, they were okay, but like the whole area is just totaled. Yeah. Or the, because uh, it's right, it's kind of in kind of like a fruit bowl, right? So all that water would have just sequestered and howled. Mm. It comes off all the mountain, the ranges, and just gets funneled into this, into that one area, really. Mm. Well, anyway, thank you so much for wanting to do this. Well, it's been a, it's been a um, quite a process to yeah get get a time. Obviously, I would have preferred <laughs> to have done this in person. I find podcasts slightly uh, powerful when you do it face to face, but you know Zoom will suffice. And I think you know with technology, you can still we can still be face to face and somewhat feel the energy. I think that's the biggest thing with the person in person, but I'm happy with this and grateful you can take the time. Mm, no, thanks for having me on. Yeah. So firstly, what, what's, what's, uh, what's happening right now in your life? Where are you and what are you doing? Uh, yes, a lot. Um, I'm in the Bahamas and um, I'm supposed to be training in the lead up for Vertical Blue, which is happening in just over two months. But um, at the moment, I've got an ear infection, and so that's kept me out of the water um, for the last well, more than a week now. In fact, this whole kind of year has been um, a challenge with um, with just like not nothing serious, but just like lots of minor illnesses all strung yeah. together. Um, and in other sports, like if I guess if you're if you're running or, or swimming, then you can still train when you have a cold with freediving you can't equalize at all um so you, you can't get off the surface you can't go down uh and yeah this this year i've had like a total of 11 different uh viruses of different kinds including wow. like COVID and influenza a bunch of different colds ear infections so it just meant that my training has just been like riddled with holes I imagine that would be like immensely testing to you of the mental psyche because in the process, right, with free diving, the whole core of it, which I found fascinating in your book, which I must say was amazing. I really enjoyed your book, Oxygen. Uh, that, mm -hmm. that was something you spoke a lot about was the headspace and how important that is and that, that and having that headspace and acquiring that perfect headspace, but being riddled by colds, I imagine that must just be a constant test for that process. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, it's one that I'm I'm kind of up to now. Like I, I can I can deal with it now. But I mean, this year has been different because there's just been so many. Um, but I I guess that patience has just been kind of drilled into me over the years yeah, of, of kind of this kind of thing time and time again. So yeah, I deal with it. Um, I can still do other kinds of training to a limited extent. Um, like out of the water, we can do some kinds of dry training that holds on to your ability a little. But um, I think it's the same to to diving, to being in the ocean and and going down, of course. Is, is that something you become more prone to as a free diver? Because you're so, I guess, your sinuses and your internal organs and this area of the head are so under pressure. Is it something that free divers are more prone to infections and not really? I think it's good being a dad. <laughs> so my <laughs> um my daughter is four years old and wow. um, she brings a fresh one back from from kindergarten every week. Like every week yeah. is a different kind of one of those. So yeah, you just get exposed to every single yeah. virus in the world at the moment. 
yeah. and I imagine with the little cavities, eh, it's probably the most exposed, so it's probably just going to cling on to there because your cavities are probably so huge from all the work you've done, contracting, expanding, contracting. Yeah, the, I, I don't think that the cavities in my head have changed. So I hope not, but okay. maybe the lung, lung volumes um, might have changed a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. Over time, kind of with freediving training, get progressively slightly larger mm. lungs, but not. Mm. Um, once you've kind of gone through puberty and like you're 16, 18 years old, you can't influence that so much. Swimmers will have bigger lung volumes because they've been um, training a lot during that period of development. Uh, but yeah, once you come out of that, you can influence it a little bit, but you can't drastically change your lung volume. Mm. Okay. Okay. Fascinating. Yeah. I'd like to kind of talk about that throughout this conversation, but you mentioned um, vertical blue because I'm aware that you started that competition. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Great. Great. So what, what year is it in now? And could you explain it for the listeners as to what that is? It's kind of the preeminent freediving event on the, on the circuit. Um, there's world championships, different kind of freediving competitions here and there, but Vertical Blue sticks out as kind of, it's called by the New York Times, the Wimbledon of, of freediving, because it's this event where all the top freedivers know they have to go. It's got the best conditions, the best safety, best everything. And so it really is conducive to huge performances, more than half of all world records in the last 15 years have been set there. Uh, so it's kind of become the mecca or the focal point of the freediving world every year. And typically it happens like in July, August in a blue hole. It's called Dean's Blue Hole. It's the deepest blue hole in the world, 203 meters deep. Although I think they've just found one in Mexico that might be deeper. Um, wow. But it's, it, I mean, you could not design a better place for for freediving. If you imagine like a swimming pool in the corner of a lagoon, a uh, swimming pool that goes down to 200 meters, except it's got like fish and beautiful kind of coral around the edges. Um, that's Dean's Blue Hole. And because it's in the corner of a lagoon, it's protected from the swell, protected from the wind, everything, no current, warm water. Yeah, you couldn't do a better job if you <laughs> tried to. Wow. So, how is something like that even formed? Is that just a natural? Kind of phenomenon. It is, yeah, it, they're called cenotes. Um, there's a lot of them in Mexico uh, and uh, all around the Bahamas as well. Most of them don't get this deep, though. So they're it's a limestone formation, um, just that forms naturally. The explanation is a bit complicated, but basically, it's formed through the acidity of a mixing zone of between fresh and salt water. Um, when these are inland, when they're trapped inland, the fresh water sits on top, salt water's underneath. That mixing zone harbors like a species of bacteria that's super acidic that eats away at the walls and makes like this vertical. Wow. Deep crevasse. That's what I found fascinating in your book is where you, it was kind of like someone mentioned it to you, then you went there and you were kind of just blown away. And, 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 mm -hmm. and, Correct me if I'm wrong, is that a big reason why you're living in the Bahamas? Because you've kind of got access to this beautiful training ground. It is the reason, yeah. Uh, so I came here in 2000 and first time in 2005 looking for somewhere to train properly. And yeah, when I saw it, I was like, wow, this is, this is perfect. Um, so then I was just kind of coming back every year for half the year. Then I got a place here. And now I kind of split my time between Bahamas and Japan and New Zealand, mostly. Those are the three zones. 
in Japan? Is that competition or is that partner? No, that's my, my partner's from Okinawa, Japan. And so we oh. have a place there and uh, two kids are going to school in Japan. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I think you mentioned that in the story, actually, near, near the end of the book. Was that right? <laughs> I want to talk happens, about that too. Yeah. Yeah. It happens towards the end of, the, of Oxygen, the book, because that kind of wraps up in the year um, that I met uh, Sachiko. Um, okay. So then since that, since I wrote that book, we've had two little munchkins um, <laughs> born in New Zealand. They were born in the, in the water in New Zealand. Um, yeah. In a way, much like how you were. I want to, so I'd love to kind of start, start from that a bit. Um, well, as like uh, your kind of your story, the timeline of events, because the thing about, reading your story is that it was it was almost like you were meant to be the person you are today everything all your circumstances the surroundings you could say your 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 dharma was already laid out for you by the time from when you were born being born on the boat and then your parents having that spirit of adventure and touring along the oceans to find little new zealand so could you start with that and like what 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 began there and how did that even begin even just for your parents to have that willingness and ambition to take such a step forward yeah so we i was born in in the north of england in 1980 and my parents uh, had built a house there but they were kind of getting sick of i think it was the end of the cold war but also thatcher margaret thatcher politics and just wanted to escape that sold the house bought a boat sailed from europe across the atlantic through the caribbean and Across the Pacific to New Zealand, but over the course of about four years, from when I was maybe just shy of two years old, and we got to New Zealand when I was five or six. And so, in those years, I obviously um, learned to swim uh, very early, and and the boat was our home. It was our means of um, of transport. The sea was was our school, was our kind of grocery store, everything, and. That's where the seeds of what would come a lot later uh, were definitely sown. So we had like a normal life once we got to New Zealand. We sold the boat. I went to school, high school and university in Auckland. Uh, but looking back, I can see the kind of breadcrumbs that were laid out to draw me back to the oceans. Um, and it wasn't until I was about, I was 22 years old and off on the, on the overseas experience at OE and heard about free diving i was like ah that's that's it got to try that and once i tried it it was yeah, love at first sight um and it was kind of committed it was kind of great because you and your brother would used to do these competitions before you're aware of the free diving correct and you would kind mm. of have have little competitions grabbing the sand going deep grabbing the sand testing that out i thought that was just yeah. amazing that that was laid out you know yeah, we didn't know anything about freediving and the gear that we had was like the big kind of fishbowl masks, short little stubby plastic fins and everything. But um, yeah, we, we were pretty keen and getting down to the bottom below us and then we'd use the, the depth um, sonar on the, on the boat to measure the depth um, below where we were to figure out how deep we went. So, so what was it when you first started the freediving? What was that that drew you in? Was it just something in you that you just... You were attracted. It was a magnet. You were like magnetized. 
Yeah, it was so many things. Um, it was just the, the feeling, the peace and the exhilaration of being underwater, uh, which is the feeling that you can't compare to, you can't use an analogy of anything else from above the surface, it's its own thing. Um, and then kind of being aquatic, being on the same footing as all the marine creatures around you. So like being able to swim alongside uh, dolphins and um, turtles or whale sharks, or to kind of interact with even the little things like little seahorses and tiny little fish in the coral reef. So really feeling like you are part of that, that environment, the ecosystem. And then uh, as well as that, um, the complete escape from like the, the mental escape from everything that's happening in your head. So it's almost impossible. I think it is impossible to think or worry about the future or to kind of um, go over continuously what, what happened in the past or the problems of the past when you're in the water, especially when you're under the water. It just strips all of that away. And so, yeah, I kind of like probably most people of that age, early 20s, had difficulties sometimes kind of um, dealing with all the, the thoughts that would pop up into my head and the kind of the random chaos of all of that. And just to be able to let all of that dissolve away as soon as you slipped under the water was the most magical thing. So those are some of those more reasons as well, but I'll stop there because those are probably the main ones. You could probably have a whole dialogue just on that alone. Like a, mm. a, it could be a monologue just explaining, conveying the purity and you displayed it so well in your book I must say in the way and especially in the language in which you chose uh, you really um, painted this kind of visual tapestry so to say as to where and um, the the areas of your psyche that are that are pulling from this process and pulling from this experience you go through you did a good job mm -hmm. at that so I would recommend to the listeners to check out that book is it available on um, amazon by the way uh your it book? is i think only as a digital version i, I think they've okay. sold it with, uh, yeah copies uh, so it might have yeah. to be like yeah i got i got a copy from the artsy bees book in wellington it was kind of like a um i think it was a unedited version but it was it was edited and complete but for some reason it was like a non-publicly available edition okay. so maybe i got the the, the special you know special version but yeah i'll definitely recommend to those listening to to get that book i'll provide a link on that uh so yeah i think i think that's um one of the amazing things for this process for you is how you manage to kind of go into that space and you're attracted to that and what i liked about your story is that it was a natural progression you kind of drew a affinity towards this discipline and then you kind of happened to the people tended to come and enter into your lives. That Italian, was it the Italian coach? Is that correct? Was that your first? Mentor? Yeah, he was my first um, mentor and, and teacher, Umberto Pellizzari, his mm. name. He was kind of the, um, the record man in the late 80s and 90s, uh, breaking records alongside, like he had a like rivalry with this Cuban guy called Pippin Ferreras. But Umberto was stronger as an athlete physically. So he was the first one to really kind of like train hard and see how deep we could go in the self-powered disciplines where you're just using fins or no fins to go for depth. Great. I'm glad you segued into that. Um, 
the free diving disciplines. Could you kind of break down because there's three, unless it's changed from from my memory of the book. Could you could you explain them and how they work and kind of how sure. that is in context like competitions and yeah, world records, etc. So there's um, there's pool disciplines, pool free diving, and those are split into like distance and, and time, dynamic apnea where you're swimming for maximum distance and static apnea, maximum time. But then in depth, um, there used to be sled disciplines, which is if anyone's seen the movie, The Big Blue, that's what they're doing there. Uh, but those have kind of become defunct. They're seen more as a, a stunt these days. Um, no one really does those. It's more about the athletic disciplines where you're self-powered, um, just using the, the, the force of the body to go down and up. And of those, there are three disciplines. So with fins, without fins, and free immersion, where you pull yourself down and up on the rope. So, so the in the discipline you, there was constant no fins, is that correct? Yeah, so I specialize in the no fins discipline. It's called yes. constant weight no fins because yeah. the weight is constant. Whatever weight you take down, you can kind of strap weights around your waist or your neck, but whatever weight you take down, you have to bring back up. Uh, so as opposed to the older kind of sled diving disciplines where you would ride a really heavy sled down and um, leave it down there and then just use a lift bag or, or come up under your own steam. That was called variable weight. Mm, yes. See, this is where the whole, the whole sport and the whole discipline just becomes so it's, it's daunting, you know, obviously for you, you've done so many years of work towards it, but going into such depths because your world record that well, 100 and, 102 meters of the constant weight discipline. Yeah. Yeah. That's the world record now. Um, so when I first got into the sport, it was, it was 80 meters in no fins and over the years I pushed it out to 102 now. Wow. So that that was another thing I wanted to bring up when your coach came. You when the Italian coach I forgot his name now. He he was he held that record. No, was it was it someone else at the time? No, he was he was concentrating more on um, diving with fins. In fact, in his time, it was mostly by fins. Then they okay. switched over to fin. So by the time I met him, his records had been broken. Okay, uh, and. Yeah, the, the no fins discipline is, I mean, it's the, the purest form of freediving, but it's probably one of the most recent, um, like the newest forms as well, because okay. until about the turn of the century, um, there weren't any world records in that discipline. Then it very quickly kind of picked up interest. And by the time I started in uh, 2003, the world record was 60. And then wow. uh, over the next couple of years, it went up to to 80, uh, which is when I was kind of getting close to those debts myself, not wow. into attempted. And you had that ambition from like almost the get go, at least you conveyed that in the book, you had this, this drive to know that, you know, you could, you could beat that, you could beat those um, current records. What, what, where do you think that came from? Will, is that just the stubbornness or is that just like, you just had this knowing? I don't know. It's probably more kind of stubbornness and, and, um, something else I don't know but I, I didn't tell anyone about that goal yeah. or that that idea because obviously I'd probably be 
um, derided for. <laughs> I was at the time only kind of like diving to 40 meters or a little more, like half that depth. But I had this kind of um, dream. I felt like I'd see the, the the video of that world record, and the guy was super strong in terms of breath hold, but his technique I felt could be improved. So I thought to myself, okay, if I can get to his level in breath hold and I can um, swim down with a with better technique, then going deeper should be possible. So I held on to that idea that, yeah, it was possible to go deeper. Yeah. And didn't tell anyone about it. And I think that's a better approach in this kind of scenario, because if you don't tell anyone, the only way you can show you had that goal is to actually achieve it. And so it internalizes the energy, which allows it to kind of stay. It's like a furnace. If you close the doors, it stays hot for longer. And so you build up that that temperature that you can use to to do anything melt metal whatever so yeah for, throughout that process um i you, you spoke about it. well what came up for me then is the um the physical component it's fascinating because like you were not too sure just for the layperson what what's required physically of someone in this sport that you are delving into and throughout that how is it that you sort of approach your physical aspect and how do you maintain that and what does the training look like not so much specifically to the breath holding and practicing that because I want to delve into that but more from the physical attributes as to like is, is gym a factor um sort of mm -hmm. like the diet like mobility where where do you kind of find your place there and how do you approach that? Yeah, from a physical kind of musculoskeletal point of view, there's two key factors. One is explosive power. So in the specific areas where we, that the muscles that we use for swimming, it's, a, it's an adapted form of breaststroke, which uses a lot of, a lot of the muscles it uses like chest and arms and um, back muscles in the, in this, this strong pulling motion of the of the arms then it uses most of the chain of muscles in the legs uh, but in particular you want to have explosive power in those so that when you dial it back to kind of 60 50 60 percent of that you can still swim at a good click but with good oxygen efficiency you're not going to be oxygen efficient if you're swimming at kind of 80 90 percent of your maximum power um, but yeah, if you dial it back and you still have good speed, that's when you're in the, the kind of the, the best zone for performance. So that's one factor, explosive power. The other one is like really good mobility of the limbs, but in particular of the, the chest and the rib cage, the diaphragm, and all the muscles that contain the lungs. Uh, because at depth, at say 100 meters, the pressure is... 11 atmospheres, which is about three times the pressure of the air inside a car tire. So if you took a, a car tire down, it would it would kind of collapse and inside itself at even at like 40, 50 meters. Uh, so in order to prevent ourselves from collapsing, we have to be really supple, flexible in the chest. Um, otherwise you'll your sustain damage to your lung cells. So if you imagine like taking a a glass bottle and a balloon under the water 
at a certain depth, the glass bottle is just going to shatter and implode, but the balloon is going to just get smaller and smaller, whatever depth you take it to. And we have to be more like the balloon than the glass bottle. So that's flexibility, in particular, thoracic flexibility. And those are the two key kind of components of the what we train physically. Wow. So in order to achieve that first component, the um, physical component, more so the musculoskeletal, the explosive power, would that require forms of um, like tension bands, gym work, like body weight stuff? How do you sort of emulate mm. that in the training environment? Yeah, I try and be as specific as possible. So trying to use motions that replicate uh, the motions they use in the stroke uh, and then doing rep sizes that target explosive power, but also doing them with explosively themselves. So like, for instance, um, a pull-up, I'll try and kind of do the, the upwards motion of the pull-up as, as quickly as possible. And typically like in a pike position, so it activates the core as well. Uh, or if I'm doing squats, I'll typically do like one-legged jumping squats. So you're going through the whole range of motion um, explosively. And uh, a lot of also resistance training in the water. It's hard to just kind of describe with words, but there are exercises we can do where you're kind of doing sculling, but putting a lot of force into it or okay. pulling yourself up onto a deck really quickly. Um, those kind of motions that are obviously highly specific and doing them with resistance um, for like a, a good number of reps so that you develop that anaerobic endurance as well. Mm. So super, super specific, fascinating. I find that, yeah, uh, it makes sense. And when you say that sculling, do you mean having like one of those paddles where you're pulling or is this just purely your hands? If you can imagine in deep water, um, you're yes. kind of standing up straight with the waterline here and you push your hands forwards and backwards. Yes, um, yes. Kind of the shape uh, like that in order to create downwards force and push your body out of the water. And then you try and maintain your body, like the water line, mm. low down in your body by doing this motion really, really quickly. Mm. And it's burning all the muscles of your forearm and your upper arms in the same kind of way that you would use them when you're doing like a big, strong, sweeping mm. stroke. So to those listening, um, William's basically mimicking what you'll do. Say if you're treading water, you almost kind of do that when you're treading water with your hands. You're, the water's above your kind of your chest line or your neckline. And as you're treading water, you're kind of waving, creating like undulating waves of your hands to kind of keep your body weight above the surface. That's kind of what I'm imagining. Yeah, that mm -hmm. makes sense. So you're building that tolerance. You say that when you get that burn, you're getting your body's tolerance to the lactic acid so that you're obviously not going to be overusing the oxygen which will obviously create a deficit for your dives exactly and what happens is it gets complicated but the body uh shuts down blood flow to the periphery which includes your arms and legs so you have very little blood flow in those areas uh during a dive and that's an actual physiological response wow. to the pressure and to the breath hole and that means your body switches over to anaerobiasis to anaerobic pathways and so those are going to obviously produce much more lactic acid, which has nowhere to go during the dive until you come back up to the surface. And so, yeah, the burn can, can become really uh, strong towards the end of one of these dives. 
Wow. So that that switch in terms of the cardiovascular response, that anaerobic response is what you would have the equivalent if you're doing a 500 meter sprint on a track or if you're doing a HIIT training session. That's real fascinating. So you're effectively in an aerobic state as you go into the dive, yet your body creates that switch and that will produce and will that sort of accumulate. And then once you reach the surface, that will all kind of bottle up. Is that is that what you're saying? More or less, yeah. Your wow. body shuts, shuts down the blood flow and so you're forced to work anaerobically. Wow. And that persists until you come to the surface and then it reverses. And so then blood flows back with oxygen to your extremities, converts that lactic acid into um, into CO2 and, and afterwards you're just kind of panting for minutes or a long time after the dive as your body processes all these wastes that have been built up. Wow. But it's important that it does that because by switching to anaerobic uh, within the muscles and the tissues, you can conserve oxygen for the brain. And the brain cannot, doesn't have an anaerobic option. It is 100% dependent on oxygen flow at all times. And so it makes sense. And this is what aquatic mammals like seals, dolphins, whales do is they, they switch over to anaerobic in the in the muscles so that their their heart and their brain can be supplied with oxygen for in their case like an hour or more wow so has this got to do with tied in with why you can have a surface surface blackout is because there's that build up of that lactic acid and then your body your brain almost becomes over oxygenated and it's just shuts down is that is that kind of tied in with that separate um are you talking about the surface blackout before? Yes. Wow. No, that's a, that's a, so this, the, like, when we're taking the final breath, it is possible to actually black out, even though your oxygen stores are very high. And that's more because we're taking this huge breath and then packing extra air into the lungs using the mouth as a mm. kind of a pump to push it down. And that puts pressure on the heart, which um, stops or slows down blood flow to the brain temporarily. If, especially if your blood pressure is low, then it's kind of the same as standing up too quickly. You can pass out even though oxygen stores are fine. That's a, a, what we call a hypocapnic blackout at the start of a free dive. But at the end, if we black out, it's due to oxygen stores becoming low just because you've used so much oxygen mm. during the dive. Understandable when you're going 100, and 100 meters. <laughs> Um, so in terms of that physical training modality component, you mentioned the explosive power component, kind of the muscular um, component. And you mentioned, I want to talk more about the suppleness and the flexibility internally with the diaphragmatic breathing and thoracic, thoracic breathing. And something I'm aware with you and your work, I'm not sure if it works along with other um, divers in, in, in the sport of free diving, but uh, how much yoga is a huge component to you. And you know, pranayamic breathing and that whole process. I've, I've observed your training videos and you're able to create that huge kind of cavity within your diaphragm where you're kind of able to contract your lungs and how important that is. And I'm curious as well, through that yoga practice, that's, is that almost a complete correlation to what is necessary of your body through this discipline you go through? Mm. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's fundamental. So what you're referring to is diaphragmatic flexibility, which is the ability of the diaphragm. The diaphragm, if you think of it, if you visualize kind of like a, 
a salad bowl, an upside down salad bowl in your torso about halfway up that divides the lungs and the heart from all of the messy organs below, like the liver, kidneys and guts and stuff. And that salad bowl can contract, meaning it becomes kind of like flatter, turns into more of like a dish or a plate. When it does, does that, it pulls down on the lungs and so pulls air into the lungs. When it relaxes, it goes back up again. Now, when we dive, the more flexible that muscle is, the more it can kind of be pulled upwards by the, the, the collapsing lungs and take over the space that is left, left behind by the diminishing lungs themselves. And so flexibility of the diaphragm is, is really important in order to tolerate the pressure at depth. And in yoga, uh, there's um, different exercises that target this kind of flexibility uh, for their own purposes. The main one is Uddiyana Bandha, where you are actively pulling up the diaphragm by expanding the, the rib cage. And then there's also uh, Nauli, which is where you do the same thing, but you simultaneously kind of contract the abdominal muscles and cycle through contraction between the obliques and the central abdominal muscles. And you get this kind of like weird washing machine effect. And all of that, um, they say, will purify the, the, the liver and the organs of the stomach. Uh, for us, it helps to develop that diaphragmatic flexibility. And that's so important for tolerating depth. Mm, so yoga asana with that 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 does that tied in much in terms of the suppleness component because you mentioned the word supple and I'm fascinated by that because I myself am I'm a yoga practitioner and actually teach yoga and this is a huge component as to what I've understood through my coaching and training and through my teaching is that the key and the aim is the suppleness you want um, mobility and strength but suppleness and you said yeah. that word so how much that ties in is the yoga asana component too. Is that something a part of your training modality and, and preparation? It is, but I wouldn't say that I'm a experienced or proficient yoga yogi. Okay. Um, I, I've kind of like taken asanas from here and there in order to create like a, a regime for myself that I use in order to prepare for a free dive so i have like maybe a, it takes about 20 minutes or so stretching regime um that goes through kind of targets the key muscles that i'm going to use in the free dive itself and in particular the the diaphragm and some of those are asanas um taken from um from yoga practice others are just kind of regular sports stretch and even some that i've had to devise myself i guess uh, but um it's just a, a, a mismatch uh so yeah, I think yoga, like some of the top free divers are also very strong yoga practitioners, mm -hmm. um, but I wouldn't count myself amongst them. <laughs> Mate, I'll probably have to ask them. They might have a different different opinion, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it because it's it just ties in um, with the whole sport. It's a sport. So... I find it fascinating that there's all these different sort of branches, but what allows you to become a proficient freediver is you're needing to tap into this more holistic, grounded, bodily and mental component. And I want to really talk and talk to this part too, where it was how much, how much the headspace mm. must be into. 
Yeah, the thing about the free diving is that there are all these kind of different parameters and they all need to be firing on all cylinders at the same time in order to perform a free dive. So it's it's like if you you can be supple and have good technique and good power, um, but if you don't have the mental side, then um, or if you don't have a good breath hold, good endurance there, then everything else is 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 worth nothing. So you have to have it's kind of like we play whack a mole. Like you'll be improving your 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 ability in, in all areas, but there'll be one that's kind of lagging behind. So you have to focus on that. Okay, now I'm focusing on my flexibility. Now I'm focusing back on my breath hold, constantly trying to bring everything up at the same time. But the mental component is one that's um, it's really tricky because there are some kind of um, things that, that are we all have in common, um, but to a certain extent, the mental techniques that we use, you have to tailor them to yourself. And you also have to continually kind of revise and update them because the, the mind is a, a fickle beast that will try and kind of outsmart you, or at least the, the negative part of your mind. And so you have to stay always one step ahead. But um, it's, a, it's a good challenge. And I think that's another attraction of the sport is that it's not just a physical challenge. It's also a, like a really strong mental challenge at the same time. Uh, you can't muscle yourself down to 100 meters and back. Neither can you meditate down to 100 meters and back. You have to be in control physically and mentally in order to have success. What are some uh, ways in which you kind of working, working in that component of your training? The meditators, the, the, the mental, the mental side. Yes, yes. Yeah, most of it is about um, being able to manage um, stress or anxiety around kind of around what you're going to do around performance. So the when you have a world record attempt or even a training dive, but in a world record attempt is magnified by a hundredfold, you have all of your divers around you who are kind of um, the safety divers, the judges, the media, camera crews, spectators, and everyone is focused on you on this performance you're going to do. And so you know that in three minutes time, you're going to take a last breath and, um, and dive to 102 meters. And you also know that you have to be completely relaxed and like in a kind of Zen meditative state in order to do so. And those two things don't, don't go very well together. When you hit like anyone who's played any sport will know that like as you kind of count down to the, the kickoff or uh, the first ball, the adrenaline is surging through your body. It's like you're you're just getting more fired up. And that helps for sports like rugby or tennis or running, cycling, or swimming. You can channel that adrenaline into a better performance. In freediving, it's the opposite. We have to activate the parasympathetic nervous system, the calming, relaxing part of your nervous system in order to perform. If you've got adrenaline coursing through your, your veins and arteries, you will burn oxygen so much more quickly. Uh, so knowing that also stresses you out because you're like, oh God, I'm feeling, feeling anxious. Shit, that's going to make the dive harder. And so you get into this kind of recursive cycle, I call it the death spiral of just building up more and more tension um 
and and stress so yeah the the main part of the mental techniques are focused on that on breaking that cycle and on being able to just remain inwardly completely calm even in the most kind of stressful situation like that so what would that look like is that you practicing simply meditation in your day-to-day obviously when you're in this situation it's it's always a whole different story however i'm imagining that you must have some uh, daily practice outside of the competition where you can kind of tap into that or is it just do you think this has just come from years of you um, exploring the sport and participating in the sport yeah i have um i I wouldn't say i have like a, a steady practice of meditation but i do sometimes most of the a lot of the training that we do requires you to get into kind of a meditative state if i'm doing 10 breath holds over the course of an hour with short recoveries between them then in that time i'm constantly kind of bringing myself back to like an empty mind if i can and just trying to slow everything down so part of it is is practicing that but then the mental techniques that involve uh, dealing with stress and anxiety uh, in particular ones that allow you to completely detach from those kind of thoughts even when they're happening so even when you're having negative thoughts being able to just kind of watch them slide by without reacting to them so it's the the emotional reaction that we have to our thoughts that is the problem so if i have a thought like this is the last breath that i'm going to take um that could kind of kick off a cycle of why did i think that what's going wrong like what's happening um What's going to happen in this dive what if it is the last breath that i'm going to take all these thoughts kind of flurry around in your, in your mind or you could just kind of watch that thought into your mind watch it leave and then return your focus to the empty space after the thought is gone and it sounds easy but it does take a, a lot of kind of practice not to get sucked in mm-hmm. uh, but you can reach a state where you you almost feel like I don't know, you're like on the other side of a river, a river bank, watching these thoughts happen on the far side, or you're behind kind of soundproof glass, um, and you can still see that there's that someone's talking on the other side of that glass, but you can't kind of, you're not affected by what they're saying. So that's the, the ultimate goal. And like I say, it, it takes multiple different techniques mentally in order to be able to achieve that to arrive at that place but it is definitely possible and it has huge application outside of freediving as well that's what we're seeing now is that apply these techniques to the day-to-day stress and anxiety that we experience in our lives in the workplace at home then the same techniques um, combined with the right kind of breathing to activate the calming parasympathetic nervous system really do um, help to turn around that that kind of um, struggle that we have with, with those conditions. Yeah, I was going to ask about that as well. So we may as well segue into that. Is is exactly that that through this um, sport and this discipline that you've you know devoted your life to is that it doesn't just have application in the sport itself, but in in lifestyle and day to day stresses, grief, loss. Uh, pain, depression, anxiety, uh, anger, frustration, 
and how these tools and the headspace you must be into when you're in these dives, none of that stuff can can live there, can probably prop up, as you've said. So what what is what would that look like? Because you mentioned that you, I'm not sure if I can say this, but you mentioned about this product uh, that you were releasing or some sort of toolkit. Oh, yeah. Public yeah, it's tool. it's it's, it's, oh, great. Yeah. Great, I wasn't cool. sure. Yeah. Can, can you talk about that? Sure, yeah. So the the idea is it's called the mental immune system. And the idea is that we create, we have like this, this physical immune system to combat the physical bacteria and viruses that might enter our system. We don't, we don't, we're not born with a mental immune system in order to combat all the negative ideas and, and bullshit that gets thrown our way, right? Um, and in our day and age, there's almost more of that than there is the, the physical, um, even though I'm, I've had so many physical viruses this year, there's still kind of like more that I'm dealing with mentally. And we have to have something in place that responds to it in the same way that our physical system does without requiring our involvement. If you have to do something, like actively remember to do something, every time you feel stressed out or anxious, it's never going to work, right? Because you, in the heat of the moment, you just respond with whatever kind of yeah. habits you have, like shouting or running away to hide or whatever kind of your response to that stress is. So we have to create and upload the system into our subconscious mind so that subconsciously we respond to those situations with the right kind of breathing, with the right kind of mental techniques, so that you don't have to decide or kind of be involved in that process. And to give you an idea of how it looks like, I'll find myself in situations where I'll, the first thing that I notice is that kind of my breathing has changed or that like mentally I'm kind of a little bit more detached. Um, and I'm like, why, why, why am I breathing like that? And then I'll be like, ah, but yeah, that's right. I'm this, this everything's been happening this has been happening um all that that stuff is going on um i'm stressed out I might this, this is my body's response to that stress and at the same time i'm feeling kind of internally calm and peaceful in the same way that i would be before a free dive and that's because that system has kicked in as an automatic response to the stressful stimuli or the anxiety inducing stimuli so yeah it's a double-pronged approach that uses mental and physical techniques but the the real key to it the game changer is that you can then program this response into your subconscious mind um, so you're basically outsourcing it to your subconscious and that allows you to kind of perform in those moments because like say you're at work uh in a important meeting or say you have to stand up and and speak publicly um, those are typically times when we might be feeling stressed out and if you have to kind of remember to engage something in those in those moments then that's going to detract from what you actually want to be focusing on which is the the, the talk the speech that you want to give so it has to be something in the background that's happening automatically allowing you to perform at your peak capacity um and yeah when that kicks in it really does change the game 
Amazing. So this this here, this is the mental immune system. That's the name of the product, or is that how does that work? What's what? So what's the product itself? Yeah, the product itself is called the mental immune system. Yeah, it's a series great. Of um, it's, what's, can... it's what. Sorry, Will, my 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 internet broke you up. I missed. What did you say? Uh, it's, a, it's a series of of videos. Great. Um, go together with um, exercises and um, like short, easy quizzes to recap the knowledge. Uh, but it's not a super labor-intensive system. It doesn't take too long to go through it. The exercises don't take too long to um, to complete, and so it does require a little bit of repetition of, of those exercises to program it into the subconscious. But it's not like Kind of take you kind of years or even that many months um, to to achieve this kind of equanimity, this kind of internal peace. That's a beautiful word and beautiful way of describing that. You used it in your book, and I thought it really moved me. Is is because the idea of equanimity is it's portrayed and conveyed a lot in Buddhism and this process mm. of internal balance and finding that harmony, not necessarily being detached from the chaos but not also being engrossed in the peace and the happiness you're finding this middle ground this balance and this yeah. is something that you've so well displayed and, and, and much so in your whole process and in your training and it's great that this mental immune system this product kind of offers that i think we need it more now in this time of existence more than ever I know, right? It's it's phew, these last few years have really created like a twin pandemic, and the mental health crisis is is now I think it's crushing generations of people. Yeah. Like a big yeah. issue. So, where can people find this mental immune system? Product? Yeah, it's just on, on mentalimmunesystem.com website. Right. We can go through. Um, through my Instagram, there's a link to it there, but um, it should should pop up on Google when you put in those words. Great, I'll add that in the show notes for for you listeners too, so it's all kind of there. Uh, yeah, awesome. Well, this is this is this is great stuff. There's still I've still got so much to go for, so yeah, we've only just got started. I think <laughs> uh, the what I'd like to really um, kind of turn to is um, you talk about the training. We spoke about the training. I'm curious what it, what's required when it comes to peaking. You know, in a marathon or a boxing fight, there's that peak period. You have your initial training block and you have your build phase and you have your peak and then you have your taper. How does that work and what does that look like in free diving? Yeah, so that, that phase, the, the last few weeks before a competition is one of the most delicate to, to get right because it's easiest to overtrain in that phase. And it's really hard. It's I find it easier to, to train hard than I do to kind of pull on the reins a little bit and focus more on rest and recovery. And so that phase is, is challenging for that reason because we'll still, I'll try and do kind of target performances at least one every couple of days normally. Um, but I could go down to as little as training every other day in that period. Typically, I train three days on, one day off, or four days on, one day off. But in that final stretch before a competition, it'll drop to one on, one off. And yeah, that can be that can be challenging just to um, 
ensure that you take the time to recover because you can feel like uh, you're not taking advantage of all the time you have, but um, it's it's just as important to to rest as it is. Basically, in training, we're, we're sending a message, we're giving our body a stimuli of what we want it to achieve. And in the recovery, that's when it has a chance to, to make those changes, to respond. Mm-hmm. If you don't recover, then um, we're constantly in that state of um, supercompensation of trying to to catch up. Mm, great. So in the in the build up, you're obviously imposing that load, that demand upon the body. So would this look like, say, if you're training for, say, your your world record attempt? Let's use as an example. In a in a marathon, you don't necessarily you'll never run the marathon distance, but you'll be very close to it. You'll you'll you'll, you'll hit that threshold very close, not far off it. A few few k's, maybe five k's off of that target um, race distance for the free dive, say the 102 meter world record. I can't recall in the book, but I, I remember you're hitting close, you're nudging close to it. And that's a similar principle, right? You're imposing that demand and then you'll obviously pull the reins back in that process of the recovery for your body to kind of assimilate the stresses that you imposed upon it to adapt and then take you to the day. So how far off are you from hitting the actual um, depth in which you're trying to achieve in a competition setting? Sure, yeah. Typically, I will try and exceed the target depth in my training if possible. Wow. Uh, so for example, the first time I broke the world record was a dive to 81 meters. The record at the time was 80. And in training before that, I'd been to 86. And that gives me kind of like a buffer, like a margin where I feel more confident about those those shallower dives to 81, 82, because I've gone past it. And in freediving, as I said before, the the, the stress that comes around a world record attempt or a competition is super difficult to deal with. Early on in my career, I wasn't as adept at doing that. And so I, I wasn't able to perform as well on a record attempt as I could in training. So I felt like I had to go past it in order to develop that confidence. And then over the years, um, it got easier to perform close to my my personal best in a competition or a record attempt. But I still, in training, did prefer to at least have gone to that same depth so that I felt like, okay, I've, I've got this, I've done it, done it once, now I just need to replicate it on the day. That gives you kind of confidence and security to a certain mm-hmm. extent. So with your world record, did you build up, you surpassed that or you got close to it? The, your current world record current world record i can't say um because okay um, <laughs> i like that i was gonna i was just thinking like hmm that's amazing <laughs> okay we'll leave we'll leave that for the uh listeners and the viewers imagination then so uh well then oh, i presume you can't say then that you've got another attempt on the horizon can't say um, that i don't have an, no i don't have an attempt on the horizon at the okay. moment I, okay meaning like this year or anything. Okay. You know, the reason why I don't, I, I just prefer not to talk about performances that are yes. past because let's say that someone, if the world record is, is X and 
that someone's uh, talking about having done x plus five, then the person who then breaks the record with x plus one doesn't kind of get the same acclaim for it because people are saying, oh, well, this other guy's done, done one. So I prefer it just to be um, right. Right. only the, the world record performance. I like that. That makes a lot of sense. And this is another thing that I find um, great, which adds to the whole mental challenge of the sport is that you declare the distance, the depth you're going to go prior to the actual attempt so that you're yeah. building that. This is where the headspace factor must come in so much is that you use the example of like a before a rugby match or a, or a weightlifting session or a competition where you, you, you're utilizing and leveraging that cortisone, that stress to pump you up. But one thing, you've got the competition of doing the free dive, but you've also got the pressure of knowing that you've made the declaration of the depth you're going to go. So you have to bypass that too. All those factors. Yeah, yeah. It would be like if you if uh, a runner said, okay, I'm going to run um, a marathon in two and a half hours or, or something like that. And there's like dire consequences if you don't achieve that. It, it puts a little bit of extra pressure on for sure. Yeah. But that's the only way that we can do it in a free dive because yeah. you have to bring a testimony up to the surface. We call it a tag. It's just this little piece of Velcro you can stick to your suit. So you, you have to set that at a certain target depth. So there's a plate down there with lights and cameras on it. And that's set exactly to the depth that you announce. And then you swim down, grab one of those tags and bring it up to the surface. And that's proof that you've, you've been to that depth. Yeah, so to explain to the people, just to kind of give a visual idea and the physiological factor is that when you're going down diving there's a certain point what is it about 40 meters where you go into basically free falling that the pressure and the weight of your body they almost cancel out and you're just free falling with your own body weight and you're almost in just free fall state can you explain that yeah so when you if you go in the pool or the lake or the sea and you breathe out everything so you exhale all your air depending on your kind of body uh, shape and construction, you might sink from the surface, or at least you will kind of sink down in the waterline, right? Uh, that's because there's less volume of air in your lungs to keep you buoyant. When we free dive, the same thing happens. When we free dive, the lungs compress, and so you lose a lot of that buoyancy. And in fact, they compress to a lot, lot smaller than you can get them even with a full exhale. With a full exhale, my lungs are around about two and a half liters. At 100 meters, they're less than one liter. So it's, it's a, a very small volume. And depending on your kind of body weight and construction, it's, it's normally at around um, 15, 20 meters that you become neutrally buoyant. So that means that your buoyancy is the same as water and um, if you stop moving, you, you won't float, you won't sink, you just stay there. Beyond that, the lungs compress more and you're negatively buoyant so that when you stop swimming, you keep on sinking. And we call that the free fall. So in my case, from around, around about 30 meters in a no-fins dive, I will stop swimming and just tuck myself into kind of like a, a glide position next to the rope. And from there to 100 meters, I'm just staying completely relaxed, eyes half shut, just 
trying to get into a nice dreamy sleepy state equalizing of course um, but not moving you know the muscles of my body that's that's the part i find just yeah the the headspace where because i guess in in some sense there's no mind but where could you describe where does the mind go in that place yeah it's uh, one of the amazing things about the water as i said before is it kind of takes away your thoughts to a large extent uh and then that's magnified underwater so the pressure somehow kind of just squeezes them out of you or something because just naturally it's really easy to get into a very empty mind state and with mental techniques you can you can work on that to the point where on the way down i might have like a two like it takes about two minutes to swim and then sink 200 meters and in that time i don't know i, I might have like a handful of thoughts kind of thing it's it's pretty most of the time it's pretty pretty empty mm. so the, the negative thoughts that kind of um of negative thinking is hardest to deal with before the dive when you're lying there taking those last breaths once a dive starts they tend to fall away to a certain extent they still do pop up so we still do need to be able to deal with them when they happen um, but it's not as frequent as it is above the surface yeah it's, it's the part obviously you know 90 9.9 percent .9 of the world's population will never even know that place to be even even to achieve that free fall state it's just it's something that's almost so mysterious and for you to convey it like that i think for those um practitioners say in meditation or even in a sauna i, I find or even when you're in like a very uh a situation or ice bath there, there's the, I, I i can imagine that there's little spaces of that space of that place you you're in but it's just i just can't it's so hard to comprehend because the thing about it too is when you enter into that free fall is that as you hit the plate you grab the tag which is the indicator that yes you did receive um go to that said depth that from there it's you're fighting now against all that pressure you have to mm -hmm. propel yourself upwards yeah yeah, so the, the free lunch that you got on the way down with the free fall, you pay for that pretty much all the way up because you're negatively buoyant for almost all of the ascent. And when you turn at 100, the negative buoyancy, it's not critical. It's not like you've got like a ton of weight strapped to your legs or anything, but you are working up against some force. So you have to, that's where the explosive power comes in. Yes. In order to kind of still gain good speed back to the surface without exerting yourself too much then you need to have like a a, a reserve of explosive strength for that yeah. so the way i see it is like on that way on the way down you're just kind of getting drawn into the ocean and you have to give yourself up to that sensation um and just kind of let it happen and be completely at peace with the idea that that so it's almost like you can't expect it to end if you're anticipating the plate the tag the turn all of that then yeah you're not going to um, be completely kind of given up to that sensation and completely relaxed so you just have to kind of get into a state where 
it almost feels like you're going to be there forever just drifting down into the ocean but then we have an alarm on the depth gauge that kind of wakes you up just before the plate and when you turn and grab the tag it's it's back on like it's it's physical again and you have to make sure that you're swimming with the right technique but still retaining some of that kind of dreamlike state so mentally uh try not to get agitated or anything just get into a nice slow but strong steady rhythm of swimming back to the surface there was there was a point in the book where you mentioned you stopped using goggles is that something that you use in your day-to-day your training is that is that something so you never wear goggles yeah for diving i don't uh for deep diving i don't wear goggles anymore no so you can see enough uh all you really need to see is the rope in front of us uh, and you can see clearly enough without goggles to be able to see the rope and come up alongside that there's not really that much else that lives down there that you'd, you'd want to see in any case so uh having having goggles or a mask isn't really necessary and the flow of water across your face across your eyes in particular helps to stimulate the dive reflex that I talked about, which slows your metabolism down and, and helps to conserve oxygen for the brain. So great. This can tie in well with in terms of the nutrition component, because you mentioned about how your body enters into that uh, anaerobic state, the cardiovascular state is that I'm imagining that that would require uh, um, high glucose demand, so a high sh- carbohydrate demand. So mm-hmm. what what does your diet look like in your process and your day to day? Yeah, you're right. So I, we have to uh, glycogen load before the dive and ensure that there's there's adequate glycogen in the muscles and liver in order to fund that anaerobiosis. And so the night before, I'll have like a carbohydrate rich meal. That morning as well, I have carbohydrate oats for breakfast. Then after training in particular, when as soon as we're done, it's all about addressing the free radicals that are generated by training, especially when we hold our breath, especially with this anaerobic state. So then the first thing that I, I do when I get back from training is I make a kind of a giant smoothie. It's like it's increased over the years now. It's it's north of a liter and it's like I put everything in it, um, a big chunk slab of aloe aloe um, but the actual leaf you strip the green off and just the gel a few frozen bananas um, some coconut from off the tree here like coconut water and then all the powders like spirulina cacao um, beetroot juice powder um, a vegetarian protein powder maca um, bee pollen so everything is is kind of packed with antioxidants but also with the nutrients that my body needs in particular like spirulina is really rich in in iron and that's necessary for for building blood for building red blood cells beetroot juice powder helps for that as well so yeah trying to kind of give my body all the nutrients it needs in order to replenish itself and also in order to make the changes that i've asked for by the training that i've done So your day-to-day diet is that so is that very so is it high carbohydrate in your day-to-day protein like fat what how, what does that look like? 
Yeah, it's very carbohydrate rich. It's a lot of um, like whole grain brown rice. Um, used to be a lot of pasta. Now it's more, especially having a Japanese partner, it's more towards rice and, and there's some incredible, like you can just have a bowl of rice with nothing in it. And it's super tasty. The, the rice they have in, in Japan is incredible. Um, and then protein sources is either from vegetables or um, pulses. Or I do a lot of kind of spearfishing and um, getting kaimuana around here in the Bahamas or in New Zealand or in Japan. So if we're having fish, then I try and make it kind of selectively fished um, like that. Typically don't have steak or, or chicken or land-based protein. Yes, so not so not much, yeah. So, okay, so not much red meats. Is that due, yeah, is that just because of the, the the digestive stress that it can impose upon you? Uh, I'm curious about that because the protein, I imagine there'd be a, there'd be a breakdown, um, but I guess you, you said you have a lot of plant-based protein, so I guess that kind of, that's where you kind of factor in that, that mm -hmm. loss, but there'd be a breakdown, right? I imagine in such, in such stresses and in, in such demands from your body in these dives and training. You mean like catabolysis or the muscle tissue? Yeah, yeah, in a way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of what I used to, to think um, when I started freediving. And so to combat that, I, I thought I needed to, as soon as I finished training, like get a big chicken meal or a steak mm. or something. But I noticed that afterwards, I would just be knocked out. And the thing is that the training itself makes your body super acidic. The carbon dioxide dissolves, makes carbon dioxide in your blood. You're, you're full of acid at the end of a, of a training session. And if you then eat foods that are acidifying after digestion, such as, um, such as meat, then you're adding to that imbalance. Okay. And your body, it's true that your body can use buffers to, to compensate itself, but that puts a stress on your organism in order to deal with it. If you deal with it through diet by eating alkalinizing foods at the end of training then you don't put as much stress on your system and it also provides all the nutrients you need when i switched to that kind of a diet then i noticed that after training i didn't need to take like a two-hour nap in the afternoon and i could do more training in the in the evening like it really did change my energy levels awesome. but the reasoning wasn't just for those benefits it was also kind of ecological and ethical um, to do with the way that those meats are, are provided mm -hmm. and also what it's doing to our planet by overproducing those kind of stocks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. I understand. That makes a lot of sense. And that's a real good um, place to come to for you to realize that in your own, in your own vessel, how that works. And yeah, it does make sense that you're kind of in that acidic state. And when you do break down red meats, it is a, uh, your body needs acid to, in order to achieve that. So you're kind of, imposing that compounding that demand it makes a lot of sense actually it's the the what they call the ash or the product of digestion so like uh your your gut is extremely acidic but when you digest the, the steak or the chicken it um the amino acids are digested into nitric acid and that's what's absorbed into your um into your blood and increases the the, the acidity there Whereas something like, say, lemon juice is very acidic, but when you drink it, the result in your blood is citrate, not citric acid, and citrate is very alkaline. Mm. So it has it's kind of like 
counterintuitive effect mm. after digestion on the, on the system. Um, and there's it, kind of a bit of an argument about that because um, a lot of people rightly say that the effect isn't great and that your body can compensate for it. But my experience has been that when my body does compensate by itself, it really does tax the whole system and then mm. yeah, I crash, crash afterwards. Yeah, if you're able to identify it in your own vessel, I think that's the most important thing. Because that's the thing with the whole nutrition debate is that everyone is fundamentally so different uh, that they, they, they require different nutrients and different demands and certain nutrients that they take in don't necessarily get absorbed as well as other people that take in a smaller amount and they can take in more. Uh, it's, yeah, it's endless. And the key here in your case, especially, is that you've been able to identify that and find your perfect use of that uh, dietary mm. balance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely for, for freediving, we have a very specific needs um, that kind of forced you in a particular direction, I guess. Mm. With, um, in terms of supplementation, what, what does that look like? You mentioned the smoothie, but is there anything else you kind of branch out to? Uh, different nutrients and minerals? Yeah, so I try and make it as kind of natural as possible, which is why something like spirulina is better than a multivitamin. It's got all the same stuff as a multivitamin. It's probably the most complete um, food, I guess, in that sense. It's got all the macronutrients and the micronutrients that your body needs but um it's not a synthetic form it's like a, a natural organic form so your body recognizes it and recognizes those nutrients um more easily it, it kind of uh, picks them up and absorbs them more easily so i try and use that approach but there's a few things which i do supplement which you'd have to say are synthetic such as uh Creatine, creatine monohydrate, which helps a lot uh, in recovery with training, with building muscle mass in the base training period. Also, one's kind of synthetic i lost i lost you will for about 30 seconds my internet <laughs> no talking about... okay sorry i've got starlink which is super fast but sometimes it just cuts out for a few seconds okay where was i the creatine you, you spoke of the creatine monohydrate that for the muscle recovery and for the building that building phase yeah, so creatine monohydrate is really helpful for uh, for base training the, at the start of the season, and also for recovering quickly when you're in the in the peak phase. Then I take iron as like a, a protein, like a a heme iron form, and B12 also, which helps. Both of those help in building red blood cells, which are the blood cells that transport oxygen. So they're really important for free diving. Those are the main synthetic nutrients, I guess, that I take. Um, sometimes I dabble with others here and there. At the moment, I'm using a few that Huberman recommended for sleep, for improving sleep, like 
Tierney, and I think, and I don't even remember the names, but the kind of perennial ones that I come back to um, in terms of synthetic ones are creatine, iron, and B12. Mm, mm. Oh, great. It sounds like you've got a good stack there. <laughs> Uh, it's it's something obviously that'll be constantly fine tuned, eh? But then once you once you sort of have your perfect rhythm, it's like why well, fix something that ain't broke? You know, that's what I find great about what what you're hearing because I've heard people say otherwise that um, just in there as it is for all nutrition protocols that people would have a complete different contrary idea. But again, it's what you're found, and I think it's it makes sense. So with with the sleep component, I imagine it's a huge factor to your training and the recovery and adaptation and whatnot do you have any uh system around your sleep patterns and how you approach that do you have like a set amount of time you would like to get an ideal target how does that look yeah sleep is so important um it's a really big piece of the puzzle puzzle probably as important as nutrition and it varies depending on where I am in the cycle. So if I'm not training at all, then I'm happy, like I'm, my body's okay with kind of six, seven hours of sleep, preferably eight. When I'm training hard, eight is a minimum. Uh, if I get anything less than eight, then I feel it the next day. And it has to be uh, eight hours of quality sleep starting early like if i sleep from one till nine in the morning that's not going to work it has to be from kind of 10 to six or 10 to seven and when i really start training then it's more than eight and coming into competitions i can sometimes go up to like nine ten hours wow i remember um hearing that federer sometimes gets like upwards of 12 hours of sleep uh, when he's when he's playing like at wimbledon or something so and and so many athletes have have recently kind of targeted sleep um, as a main like a big uh, way of of getting gains. It's kind of yeah, it's almost like a um, who was it who, who called it a form of doping? Like it's it really is like a magic bullet. Maybe um, Sam is it is it a that neuroscientist Sam Walker? I think it's Sam Walker. Yeah. Okay. Matthew Matthew Walker, I think his name is. He wrote the book uh, "Why We Sleep." Yeah, mm. it's the it's right. the best natural free doping protocol that any is exactly. accessible to anyone. Yeah, and you can see that like when you get you go to bed early. Like now that I have kids, sometimes we'll go to bed with the kids at like eight thirty <laughs> in the evening, and if you sleep through till six thirty the next day, and you wake up, you just like just it turns everything around your wow. mood as well as your ability to train like everything is benefited wow do you have a, a a process in that or is it just kind of like you go to bed do you have like a down regulation process do you use blue blockers what's what does that look like in terms of our environmental factors yeah i um i have that program on the computer that changes the light if i am using my computer late but i don't have too much of a routine about it i guess and sometimes i do struggle with um with getting to sleep i have a, a, a technique that i call like a mental pillow where it's something kind of like an idea it could just be like a fantasy world or like an idea for like a film or a book that i'm thinking about and by taking yourself to that place and kind of 
visualizing it, it's kind of like you're resting your head on a on a psychological or like a mental pillow. Um, whereas the alternative would be to kind of go over everything that's happened in your day, and then sometimes you can get like angry about something that that happened, kind of mull over that. Um, so yeah, just taking your mind off those kind of things and onto something that's a little bit more kind of like dreamlike, like a, a fantasy of some kind, seems to make a difference. Yeah, I like it. Practical. Practical. Uh, there's, I want to, there's a few more things I'd love to talk about with you, um, Will. And one thing that came up in the book, which I found was fascinating that you're able to pinpoint is um, the bone density piece. And that through, uh, yeah. Yeah, through your discipline uh, of, free diving that you one day i can't recall in the timeline but you you just found yourself your rate of the free fall had diminished and you couldn't really pinpoint it and then you somehow thought about the bone density then you added a certain amount of weight and that helped you get back to that same rate mm. of fall so uh, can you talk a bit about that like what the bone density and how, why that matters and how you kind of came to that and realize and had to implement you know this new protocol yeah at the time i didn't i wasn't aware of the fact that we lose bone density over time as we age but in my training i was kind of getting frustrated because i'd noticed that i felt slower in the free fall in particular my what we call terminal velocity which is like the fastest speed you get to free falling at the end of the descent that had seemed to be slower than normal. And so I went back through, I have like a log of all my dives where it tracks like all the, the parameters and the depth and everything. And I can very accurately see from the graphs what that terminal velocity was. And so I graphed over the years what my average terminal velocity was each year. And when I saw that graph, it was just a slow, steady slide downwards, like it was kind of linear downwards. And that couldn't be technique, couldn't be equipment, which hadn't changed, couldn't be anything else. And so there had to be something that was changing my body. And when I did some research, I found out that, yeah, bone density decreases. And I did the calculations based on what it, it would normally decrease over the number of years that I've been diving. And it came out as the exact amount that I had changed in terms of my body's density and buoyancy in the water. So, yeah, once I added on I think it was about 300 grams of weight in order to compensate for that then my terminal velocity picked back up again and obviously that's weight that I then have to bring up to the surface yeah, so yeah for it. but it brought me back into a slightly more balanced profile for the dive wow I find that fascinating so when you do a competition you're going to have to you can take that weight with you but obviously you need to bring that up is that correct yeah 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 yeah, yeah, that's quite forgiving. It would have been pretty harsh if they're like, nah, just your body weight. <laughs> yeah, because then some people are, are super buoyant in the water. Mm. Uh, some people, like um, black people, people of color, have mm. much stronger bones, like mm. more dense bones than us, which makes them better in most sports. Um, but it also makes them heavier in the water. And so they naturally um would wouldn't need to wear weight or might even need to wear more buoyant suits in order to compensate for that to a certain extent so yeah it definitely does need to be kind of a way of of evening it out mm. it's good that they've done that yeah 
with um in terms of you, you mentioned it briefly well you kind of touched upon it in terms of improving breath hold and um diaphragmatic breathing and thoracic breathing i want to talk about people um firstly the people that want to first improve their breath hold because i think everyone listening everyone wants to be able to hold their breath a little longer you know whether you hold it for 30 seconds they probably want to hold it for a minute or whether you can hold it for two minutes you want to be able to hold it for two and a half or three minutes what are, firstly for that group myself included what are some steps for people that they can take is there a protocol or what have you where they can improve and work upon that sure yeah so the, the main thing would be to remember that when you feel that urge to breathe it's not that your body is suffocating or dying asphyxiating or anything it's not even probably a lack of oxygen the urge to breathe comes from an increase in carbon dioxide which is the waste gas that's building up in your body co2 and it cannot hurt you um, not at these levels so that sensation is purely your body just saying hey we haven't been breathing we're getting all this co2 building up do something about it breathe again uh, and if you treat that purely as information coming from your body about the concentration of that gas then you can kind of stay again kind of have equanimity or, or stay calm internally so it allows you to stay relaxed and not get into kind of like a panicky tense state which would obviously consume oxygen so much quicker and that's the the typical route that a, a beginner would go through is that they'll be okay for the first little while then start to experience that urge to breathe start to kind of tense up and feel bad mentally that their mind is going at 100 miles an hour as well so they're just creaming through their oxygen reserves and pop up soon after that but if you can stay relaxed in that phase then you can keep continue to hold your breath for a lot longer past that initial urge to breathe mm -hmm. then doing a sequence so not just doing one breath hold but doing a breath hold then staying relaxed giving yourself a couple of minutes a few minutes to uh, recover from that breath hold and trying a second one the second one will feel noticeably more easy than the first one and so if you do two or three or four in a sequence you'll probably find that the third or fourth one will will be a lot longer than the first right so that, that seems quite practical so obviously you don't want to be in the water when you're doing this you'd want to be sitting down i presume in case you pass out because you could pass out is that right or Oh, you're back. Yeah. <laughs> so you're saying, um, obviously, you wouldn't be want to be sitting in the room. Sorry. You were saying that you wouldn't want to be in the water doing this, which is, which is correct. If you do have a safety buddy in the water in the pool, then uh, that's fine. But they do need to be trained with the right kind of um, knowledge and expertise in order to 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 partner for you. Um, so. If you want to practice in the pool, then go to do a, a course or a, to a freediving um, club first so that you can get those techniques. But doing it dry, like lying on the couch or on the floor, is fine as long as you don't have like a, a nose clip on or a mask that's covering your 
your nose so that if something should happen, if you did black out while holding your breath, you would just relax and start breathing again. So yeah, that's that's completely fine. Great, great. Well noted. I'm sure the people listening will noted and it seems seems practical and realistic too. I think the biggest thing that people do it, they kind of just want to do it, but they don't actually have a protocol around it. So you're kind of talking it from a repetition standpoint. And if you, I guess it's about um, building the CO2 tolerance. That seems to be the biggest piece of that puzzle. Mm, mostly, yeah. Mm. At the same time, with those repetitions, just you'd want to be careful not to overventilate, not to breathe too much. The the kind of um, what's the word? The natural thing to do is to kind of want to try and breathe more to oxygenate your body, but in fact that's not what's happening. You cannot breathe more oxygen into your body. Uh, just with regular natural breathing as you're doing now, that's enough to keep your oxygenation of your arteries at 100%. Extra breathing isn't going to change that. It's just going to bring the level of CO2 down, which makes it feel easier to hold your breath, but it also makes it easier to push past your limit. And it also turns off some of the oxygen conservation. So... The trick in the recovery is just to stay relaxed, breathe passively with the diaphragm if possible, but just kind of like a, a natural, slow, shallow rhythm is plenty for the, for the preparation. Great. So, and then the next kind of group of people I want to talk about is people that practice free diving. Um, I've done a bit myself and I'm kind of just going into that. Um, it's more more of a hobby. I do it. I've only done it about three or four times. Um, however, I want to get better. But I've also got my friends. Uh, well, my my she's basically my sister in law. Her her brother and herself and my brother they they do free diving and they kind of want to have uh, a practical um, process to implement so they can kind of improve their free diving. Would you kind of follow the same process as practicing just? Uh, yeah, just land, dry, dry uh, breath holds, or is there a way, and while you're in the water, that you could do to kind of practice that and improve upon that? Yeah, for someone who's more serious about free diving, I definitely encourage them to learn the safety techniques so that they can practice safely in the water, whether that's the pool or the sea. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the exercises are more, again, more specific when you're doing them in the water. Yeah. And to develop the the dive reflex uh and there's i wouldn't want to go into the so many different exercises yeah and yeah yeah i sorry i mean i mean um not free diving i mean spear fishing my the, uh, myself no. and, and they do spear fishing not free diving i was just like wait no i'm not a free i mean i meant spear fishing so obviously similar principles but the same mm -hmm. same rule applies as what you just said is that is that correct yeah for sure yeah, yeah, and then yeah. spear fishing doing um, drills and training exercises in the pool with fins on, where you're, for instance, swimming laps with underwater, with short recoveries between them, and those recoveries get shorter, um, or the distances get longer. That kind of idea all helps with your training for spearfishing. Mm, awesome. Uh, great. That, that, that was a huge thing I really wanted to talk about because I think everyone, everyone essentially does want to uh, improve their breath hold something about it uh, and I one of my friends who does a bit of um, 
uh, spearfishing is he said he's practiced ones where he's on the beach and he has a landmark and he holds his breath and walks and just mm -hmm. keeps walking. And then he's found himself on the ground a couple of times just because. Of... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so when I can't get in the water because of sinusitis or something else, yeah. um, that we call that apnea walking as one of the exercises we might do. And yeah, in his case, what's happened is he's, he's held his breath so long that he's, he's passed out and doing it on the beach is good for that reason because you just kind of fall into the sand but in his case if it's ideally you want to avoid that of course so doing it with shorter recoveries uh so that you don't allow yourself to off gas so much co2 will make it feel more difficult and also will prevent him from being able to force himself where he, he passes out could you also talk about um samba well because i don't i, I kind of understood it in the book but i'd love the audience to sort of understand that that in the process of free diving what you go through when you have sambas and yeah could you could you expand upon that the samba is just the pre-blackout state and yeah. technically it's loss of motor control lmc and because you don't have motor control your body kind of make spasms or makes this jerky kind of motion that <laughs> we're nearly there anyway but yeah you're talking about the shaky motioning and the samba Yes, I'll go back to the start of that. So yeah. uh, samba is basically a pre-blackout state. Technically, the word is is um, LMC or loss of motor control. So your body loses motor control and makes like kind of spasms or jerky motions when your oxygen level is just below that threshold of hypoxia or low oxygen. And yeah, it looks a little bit like a dance, which is why I got the name of, of samba. But it basically shows that you're on the edge of blacking out and often we'll come to the surface and if you push it a little bit too much then as you're taking those first breaths on the surface you might kind of like be jerking jerking your head or your hands um, with this lmc samba mm. yes yeah because yeah. in, in your in a couple of your attempts that that's that's happened to you correct where you've had uh, yeah. samba surface level blackout it's it's, it's not a, um quite a blackout so i've okay. had blackouts um but a samba is where you're still just conscious mm. and you're still able to continue breathing but you're not in complete motor control and that can go both ways so if it's a light one then you can kind of breathe through it and perform what we call the surface protocol which is like a test mm. that you within 15 seconds to show the judges that you're lucid just have to take off your facial equipment make an okay sign say i'm okay but if you're too far gone then and you're having a big samba then completing that in 15 seconds might be impossible so that's why we have that surface protocol to kind of distinguish uh like a level of of lucidity that you need to have at the end of the dive in order to make it valid yeah that's great i'm glad you touched upon now i was gonna bring that up too about the um 
surface protocols. I've got a couple more um, questions, Will, and there's also, I want to finish on this beautiful uh, excerpt that was fingers from your training diary, but I'd kind of want to finish on and I'd like you to kind of expand upon it, but also just to kind of leave the listeners um, in a bit of a space of the place that you've explored and uh, through your training and through your own journey on this path. And yeah, I just felt, felt it seemed very befitting to finish on that. Um, when it comes to the, your records, can you talk about your records, please? Because I think that there are some that are just, it's so immense and far, seems so far out of reach. And it literally is, you are probably, you may be some of the only, one of the only humans that could achieve um, what you've done or maybe ever, but regardless, you've done it. We, we spoke about the 102 meter uh, record, which in itself was amazing. What I liked about that story is that you attempted the first time and unfortunately, I don't want to say failure because I don't believe that word. It was um, the attempt didn't succeed. Let's just put it that way. And then you had set the date. You told, I think it was a Steinlager-sponsored event. You told the news or, the, or whoever it was, the reporter that, yeah, I'm going to do this again. You set the date and you kind of built yourself up for that. And I loved in the book how you conveyed that. You imposed this stress and this um, necessity to achieve this dive record and you put that stress upon yourself yet you still kind of went forth and in that process you found yourself you weren't able to achieve these dives and then this is where you found your wife and how much love had such a piece on you being able to achieve that headspace um but i'd like to talk about that quickly um that that uh that that record that still holds um of 102 meters yeah so the, the mental component there was really important because, as you say, I had put that stress on myself by announcing a date and by also saying, like the first time when I did the first uh, Steinlager dive in 2014, it wasn't successful. And um, I guess um, the New Zealand population, like the supporters in New Zealand kind of accepted that um because obviously not everything can be successful but the second time around it felt like that wouldn't have been okay like if i'd had another um die that didn't go right that there wouldn't be the same kind of feeling around it so i felt like i didn't have any option but to succeed and i felt the pressure from that and so i really i think i developed like five different mental techniques for that one dive that I'd never used before as well as all the other ones that I already had like I really worked hard on the mental component at the same time it was the year that I met Sachiko and just like months before this attempt uh, we'd fallen in love and the effect of that on your physical system can't be um can't be overestimated the hormones that we produce in that state, um, in particular oxytocin, are really, really strong at helping the body to recover, helping for adaptation. And yeah, in the same kind of period when I met her and we're, we're spending time together, I saw that performance really um, pick up and dives that were previously very difficult became just very, very easy. So I have to put a lot of the credit there as well. Um, but um, 
still when the day came, it was still a, a very tough dive, like it was at my limits and I had to make sure physically as well as mentally, like everything was kind of operating at 100%. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was an amazing, I watched the video several times, but I rewatched it recently and it's just, yeah, the guy, the guy that's queuing the, this, the depths and just the anticipation in that process and how dark it is at the bottom there. Like, my gosh, I find it, it's, it's quite um, poetic that, you know, in order to reach the light, you must go into the depths of the dark. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and also the other few records I've got here noted is the Cook Strait Crossing. So is that an accumulative breath hold where you go underwater, hold your breath, come up, get air, and you accumulate that distance and you did the Cook Strait Crossing? Which is a crossing between the tip of the um, the tip of the South Island and the bottom of the North Island, where there's a merge, there's a strait between those two oceans. You cross that mm. in one breath, essentially, accumulative. Yeah, I did it the opposite direction from the north to the south. Yeah. And it took, I think it was like 930, I want to say, breath holds. <laughs> so basically trying to swim like a dolphin because I was doing wow. it for the money. Yeah, I want to talk. Uh, great. Perfect. And um, I mean, they that's part of their territory, yet um, that it's, it's also territory where they can be... Um, by as bycatch and, and fishing so i didn't feel it was right that that i was able to kind of swim freely in those waters and the dolphin that calls those waters its home is not free there like it's um it's really at risk of, of being caught in bycatch and so yeah it was just uh one swim um trying to do it um all underwater not moving on the surface i've come to the surface and just take a few breaths while treading water before going back underneath um, again and, and carrying on. And it took 930 of those to get across like 22 kilometers distance. How long, how long would that take? Uh, about nine, I think it was just over nine hours as well. Wow, wow. And that was all, and um, obviously awareness around the Maui dolphins, that was a big, big cause for that. It was the main cause for it, yeah. Right. Yeah, I also great. wanted to prove that that kind of crossing could be done. Yes, uh, myself and to others because I it's this idea that I'd had for a, for a while, uh, but um, yeah, it was done for for our New Zealand dolphins. Yeah, amazing, great. It's a great cause because the Maui dolphins are so beautiful and uh, their um, population has diminished severely in the last 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And yes. and sorry, what was that? It's at a critical state now. Yeah, 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 it is. It is. It's at that tipping point moment where it's almost, yeah, well, let's hope that it doesn't reach that um, because, yeah, they'll eventually go extinct, which we don't want. Um, to the New Zealand, um, to the international audiences, yeah, but just this beautiful dolphin that reside mainly only in New Zealand. Is that correct? In that hemisphere of the, of the globe? Only in New Zealand coastal yeah. waters, so they don't go far offshore, but they yeah. stay within the depth contour, and only on, mostly on the um, in the South Island, mostly on the east coast of the South Island, and a little bit up the west coast. So the Maui's dolphins is actually only found on the west coast of the North Island. Wow, wow, amazing! And 
the other record is your underwater marathon, which you did recently. Was it last, the end of last year? November last year, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations on that. I think that's an amazing feat. You bet the um, current record holder. Can you explain that, that dive or that attempt, that, that was, record? It was kind of seeded a little bit by, by the Cook Strait swim. After that swim, I was kind of started thinking, well, how far could I swim in 24 hours underwater? moving underwater and the current world record was 23 or 24 meters and I knew I could go past that um, but I wanted to, to find out and see what that was like I, I'm not I wouldn't count myself at all as an endurance athlete and so it was kind of a big ask on my system mm -hmm. for that reason and also kind of logistically just keeping up with all the little niggles and stuff in your body which can very quickly bloom into um, things that cripple you and, and stop you from continuing and um, nutrition as well like getting the right kind of nutrition I think I over overdosed on um, energy bars and bananas to a certain extent um, so so yeah anyway it was a it was a fun experience it was a challenge and I managed to swim just over 50 kilometers in the space wow. of 24 hours yeah, that's an amazing endurance feat. Uh, yeah, I, I can't even begin to um to understand the training load that would have been required in order to achieve that. Would that have just meant like not so much like your incredible um, deep dives, but this would have just been that accumulative day after day of imposing that breath hold, just session after session. Would it was that all? How would it looked? Would your training plan would have been vastly different in order to have achieved that in that peak? Yeah, actually, as part of the training that I do for depth, I do a lot of pool training where I'm swimming laps underwater with short recoveries, very short recoveries. And that trains my technique. It also trains my tolerance to low oxygen, high CO2, and um, trains mental components as well because they're, they're very demanding mm -hmm. kind of staying in that state of, of low oxygen, high CO2 for a long period of time. So in a typical base training session in the pool, I might swim two or three kilometers in this, this style, which is why I knew that I kind of, if I cut down on the, the like I increased the intervals between laps and made it easier workload, then I felt like I could go for a lot longer distance. And I did a few, I didn't do a lot of specific training for that particular record attempt. Like I did a few longer swims in training where I was doing maybe six, eight. I think the longest one was 10 kilometers uh, just to kind of find rhythms and find the right kind of workload that I felt would then be sustainable for 24 hours. Yeah. But I hadn't done anything like close to this distance. It's a phenomenal feat. So congratulations on that. I saw you did it and I was like, wow, I'm not not surprised and but yeah the endurance component um because i myself i do uh endurance sports and it's one mm. thing to need that mental component to do what you do but to also compound that with the physiological endurance in order to endure that it's yeah it's mind-boggling <laughs> so yeah amazing um so got two more things your sense of taste you said uh, you lost that. Is that something that is still a fact? Yeah, it's, it's not coming back. It's been oh, 15 plus years now. 
Wow, and it's been 15 years. Wow. She, no, uh, yeah, 17 years. Wow. It happened when I was in Egypt training for a world record attempt, which sometimes um, gets erroneously reported as, as having occurred after a blackout. And I did have blackouts in that period uh, in my training and the, and the record attempt itself. But this loss of taste happened kind of gradually over the course of a few weeks. And I think I can attribute it to some dodgy Egyptian medicine that I was taking to try and clear up like a sinus, uh, sinus infection during training. And I was like really anxious to clear that up. And I was um, taking these like nasal sprays and stuff, um, probably too much, and somehow that that killed it. So wow, yeah, I come back and I didn't expect it to, but it's no biggie. So when when you say loss of taste, it's actually loss of function of the tongue, which tastes salt, sour, sweet, and bitter, and nothing else. But all the flavors of, of foods like chocolate or banana or strawberry. Like all of that, you actually taste it with your nose. If you pinch your nose and you eat an apple or an onion, it tastes the same. You can't taste it. Um, so it's no, it's no big deal. I'm, I can't. Like if you put a spoonful of sugar or salt in my mouth, I can't distinguish the difference. Um, those are kind of crude tastes. Mm. I get all the subtleties. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it's guess it's kind of the the cost don't want to put it that way but you know for what you do and i mean you seem very equanimous about that so it's great yeah yeah so my, I, I see it as a minor injury I'm not yeah really, yeah I don't even think it's, it's, it's not yeah, great it's the, mm, uh, good that's a good place to be so i'd love to finish on this um well if you don't mind me sharing this as an excerpt and i just think it's just yeah it resonated yeah. with me um there is a kind of threshold between shallow and deep, between a state of floating, buoyant with the lungs volume and a state of falling into the abyss where this volume is compressed. As free divers, we must choose with every dive to pass at this point and surrender to the free fall. Any hesitation or reluctance will act like a tether to the surface that slows or halts our flight. In the moment we pass the threshold and fall into heaviness, we leave a part of ourselves behind. We leave our history and our hopes and continue as only our present selves. We leave behind the concept and memory of breathing and continue with the deception that we are aquatic. In that moment, the self separates and we continue with only what is necessary for our journey. The less of us we take down, the lighter the load. I just thought that was a great closing to this conversation. Uh, you, we really explored this. I feel in, our, in in this dialogue, and yeah, there's a lot to be said about the frame of mind and the space you must be in in order to achieve what you do. So, yeah, I congratulate you and commend you, and um, I thank you for giving me your time today. It, it really means a lot, William. Uh, yeah, I remember when I wrote you down in my podcast guest list, like, yeah, no way, like, so far off. But here we are. So I really, yeah, I thank you. No, I appreciate it. And thank you for that that reading. You, you you read it very well. So thanks for having me on and, and all the best. Great. Well, I'll be in touch with you if ever you're in New Zealand. I'd love to meet you in person and maybe go over some free diving drills. Absolutely, yeah. We can go out spearfishing, get some yeah. 
Yeah, I'd love that. I'd love that. Well, thank you so much, Will. And um, yeah, good luck with your recovery and we'll speak soon. You, just about. Thank you. See you later. Bye. How was it, guys? Really hope that was an enjoyable conversation for you. There was a lot to take away. I'd been sitting on it for a couple months and I was so eager to share it with you all. And I'd actually planned to speak with Willie probably over a year ago now. And we were going back and forth for so long because I really wanted to do it in person. So Zoom was what had to suffice. So that was okay. Uh, I hope the audio quality was bearable. And you probably kind of forget the first minute into it. You kind of just becomes the becomes the audio. So yeah, on that note, um, there is a new format coming forward, which I'm so excited to be sharing. Um, I've still got a few episodes that will be on Zoom, however, uh, but basically present and present day moving forward, I'm going to be uh, actually videoing all my podcasts. So I'm really excited to be bringing that new format. It's been something I've been talking about for a while now on this uh, podcast. And yeah, it's a pleasure to be bringing to you um, that sort of uh, media. Um, I'd love to know what you thought about the conversation. I'm sure uh, William would love to hear from you all. If you have any questions, I'll share the links to his product, especially the mental immune system, which I think is very vital in this day and age for all of us that are navigating this ever-changing terrain. And what it is we have to encounter, the stresses and the constant barrage of stresses that are endless. So I thank you, William. I thank you all listeners for tuning in and I want to just give a quick shout out to the sponsors for today's episode and that's so well that is my coaching business where I am working with individuals who are wanting to achieve smash and pursue any athletic health nutritional or sleep or movement goals Um, I'm coming from a very holistic and a very broad uh, approach to dealing and working with individuals so if this is something that resonates with you or you feel this is something you're curious about please message me on instagram uh, so well and reach out and if you want to learn more get in touch and who knows might be something that you just need right now anyway thank you all for tuning in i love you all keep well Much love and speak soon.